The strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient Mesopotamia. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. We're glad you're here today because we have an interesting topic. 666 Beyond Conspiracy. We're going to talk about the Beyond bit in the second program. We'll talk about the 666 here. You know, some years ago, I was running the same series in the Kingdom of Tonga. And uh, running our sound system were a Roman Catholic couple. And we became very good friends because they were experts in sound and, and they were, they had been hired to do this job for us and we became very close friends. I'll never forget the day that, uh, Sione came running in to the theatre, uh, before the program when we were setting up and he says, man, you should have been at our cathedral today in Tonga. Something amazing happened. He was really quite taken back and his dear Portuguese wife, she also was quite amazed. She said, you know, the bishop made a very strong announcement today. He got up in the whole church, the whole cathedral, and it was on national television. And the bishop said, well, folks, you know that I drink quite a bit. He said, I want you to know today that I quit drinking alcohol like I once did. And uh, this couple were deeply moved. And I thought, man, that's an amazing thing for a bishop to tell his congregation. And so I said to my friend uh, who was working with me, I said, we must go visit the bishop during the week and, and just pray with him and encouraging him in his decision because he's setting a good example for, for his, uh, his people. So we went along to the bishop's office in the middle of the week. And the moment you stepped into his office, you could tell this was a man of God. You know what I mean? You can tell when somebody really cares about the things of God and has a love in his heart for people. So the bishop shared with us his story. A little bit. He said, you know, the reason I made that decision the other day and I went live on television, he says, was because of my mother. And my mother influenced me. Well, it's Mother's Day today and tomorrow, isn't it really? Well, tomorrow is Mother's Day. But he said it was because of the influence of my mother that I decided I wanted to set a good example for my people. You know, I've never forgotten the, the, the time we had with the bishop. And I thought all of us need to take a, a stand an example, I should say, from the bishop. Sometimes we have to make a stand for that which is right, that which is going to help other people. And this program today is one of those sorts of programs as we go to the Bible together and understand this matter of 666. But before we do, we need to ask God to guide us because there are many ideas of what this is all about. Shall we pray, asking God to help us? Father, we thank you for the example of the bishop who was prepared to make a stand for that which is right, that which would help lead others by example. As we open the Bible today, as we go to the pages of the book of Revelation, open our minds, may we be willing to follow in the way of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so 666. Well, the first part we're going to be looking at, of course, is the mark of the beast, and then we'll have a look at the beyond part after. 666, some people are afraid to go through or have been afraid to go through with their groceries. Maybe that number, that barcode on the grocery tin has something to do with 666, some people have felt. Other people have been afraid sometimes to take a credit card because maybe this thing's going to get them into trouble down the track. All sorts of ideas of 666 today. Some people are afraid because maybe there's going to be a biochip under your forehead or in your, your right hand. 
Many of these ideas are floating around in the community today, around the world, in fact. But if you want to know what the Bible really says, we need to go to the Bible if you want to know about 666. Now, let me say that the strongest warning is about that is given in the Bible is probably the one about receiving the mark of the beast. You'll hardly find a stronger warning in all of Scripture, except perhaps the one we saw last weekend when we saw about what happens when a person dies and trying to contact the dead. Remember that? Very strong warning. Well, this is about as strong as it gets. John says, then a third angel followed. So here comes the third angel. We've seen the first one a number of times in this series. Now we're zeroing in on the third angel's message. A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, says John, if anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead, or he says on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength. There's no mercy in this now. This poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. You can appreciate this is a strong warning. Now, because it's such a strong warning and because of the dire consequences of receiving the mark of the beast, then, of course, you must be able to understand. It would hardly be fair of God to allow that to happen to someone who had not a clue about what the mark of the beast was all about, you see. You're going to understand clearly this afternoon that people in the end of time will understand very clearly what the issue is all about. So we must be able to understand it or it would hardly be fair of God to do that. So let's now notice what the Bible has to say about this. You know, we've been to the island of Patmos a number of times. I mean, half of our seminar is coming out of Revelation and, of course, the prophet Daniel. But in Revelation, you find contrasting pairs. You may have seen this before. Let's notice. For example, in Revelation, you find a marriage supper of the Lamb and a supper of the birds or the vultures. And we talked about that last week when we looked at Armageddon, if you were with us. Then in Revelation, there is also, you will notice, two women. John sees not only a marriage supper of the lamb, but he sees a pure woman, and he sees a prostitute riding on a scarlet-colored beast, which we'll look at next week, weekend. So these contrasting pairs. Now, there's a key here to understanding the revelation here, because you see what's going on is this. If you want to understand one in the pair, oh, by the way, and not only that, we have a seal of God, which we're looking at today, and a mark of the beast. These two things are contrast as well. Two seals, two marks, one from God, one from the beast. I find it fascinating that lots of people want to talk about this one, but nobody seems to talk about this one. Lots of people want to hear about the Antichrist, but very few people want to know more about Christ. It's fascinating, isn't it? But these are the contrasting pairs we see here. Now, John is really helping us with a clue here. If you want to understand one in the pair, then understand a little bit about its opposite because it'll be in contrast and in opposition to it. So look at one and you'll understand something about the opposite in that pair. And that's a very important clue to understanding things in the book of Revelation. So let's do that. You're going to see if we understand the seal of God, we will be very easily understand the mark of the beast because it'll be something similar, but in contrast or opposition to the seal of God. 
So this will help us. All right, so let's go to look at the seal of God first of all so we can understand. Now, there are two pictures or portraits in the book of Revelation regarding the seal of God. They are found in chapter 7 and chapter 14. Now, you may remember, those of you here, back a couple of weekends ago, we saw the seven seals and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And here is where we find our first picture. John, under the sixth seal we noticed, saw the climactic end time events of planet earth. He saw the return of Jesus the Christ. Notice what John says as he comes to the end of that seal. The great day of their wrath has come. That's the one on the throne and the lamb. Their wrath has come. And he asked this cryptic question we've seen before. Who is able to stand? When Jesus comes, who can stand before the throne of God and the lamb on that great day? Who is ready, in other words? Now, John, in the next chapter, because there were no chapter divisions originally we mentioned the other day, he just continues on and he sees, we see the answer to that question. Four angels push back the, the winds from belting up this earth, from beating up this planet. God commissions angels to hold back because some people are not yet ready. Isn't that like God? God loves people and he holds things back. But one day he has to say, we must let go. And the devil will do what the devil wants to do then. But God holds things back. Now, notice what John saw next. I saw another angel. He said he ascended from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given, he says, to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Do not hurt the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then John hears something. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, says John. Now let's put it up here now. Who can stand before the throne of God and the Lamb? That's the cryptic question. Who will be ready for Jesus to come when he comes? Answer given is what? The 144,000 Israelite servants. That's what we just read. And these people have what? They have God's seal or his mark in their foreheads. Those are the ones who can stand before God. These are the ones saved when Jesus returns. Those are the characteristics of the people in this time. That's what we just read from John's revelation. Now, you will recall that in Revelation, there are not only contrasting pairs, but there are many symbols in Revelation. We've seen that before, but I would remind you, it's the Bible that interprets those symbols. Not just what Uncle Tom says or Pastor so-and-so says, but what says this book? We get it from the Bible. And you remember, one of those symbols is the lamb. The lamb. Is there a four-footed lamb? No, no, no. This represents Jesus who died like one of the sanctuary animals. That's clearly taught much through the Bible, but we wouldn't know that unless we went elsewhere in the Scriptures. What about Israel? Understanding the Israelites. Well, we saw that last weekend. Who is Israel? We saw very clearly from many passages in the writings of Paul especially, those are Jews and they are non-Jews who have put their life in the hand of Jesus Christ. They've accepted him. That's what it means to be an Israelite in the Bible, in the Revelation. Those people 
who have both Jews and non-Jews in Christ Jesus. Now, what about the understanding of the servants of God? Because it says the Israelite servants. So what's this mean now? What's the idea of a servant in the Bible? Well, when you go to the Bible, in the book of Romans, Paul says the law of the spirit, which is life in Christ Jesus, has made me free from the law of sin and death. That law of sin and death that sucks us down into that cesspool of sin. Now, notice what he says in Romans 6.22. But now, having been set free from sin, he says, we have become what? Servants of God. So a servant of God, he tells us very clearly what that is. Notice what Paul also says in Romans 8.9. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his In other words, a servant of God is someone who has the Holy Spirit in their life, who has set them free from the power of sin. You've seen that probably in many people's lives. They were a drunkard. They were a blasphemer. They were dishonest. They were sleeping around all over the place with Tom, Dick and Harry and anybody else until they came to Jesus Christ and suddenly the dishonest became honest and the impure became pure. And the drug addict gave up his drugs by the power of the Spirit of God in his life. That's when they become a servant of God. So a servant of God is someone who has the Spirit of God. Now, how do you receive the Spirit of God? Because if we don't, we don't have it, we don't belong to Christ. And therefore, it's in, it's, we're lost if we don't have the Spirit of God. This is not an optional extra. Now, the Bible tells us that how we receive the Spirit is this. We must believe or put our trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice the way Paul wrote it to his friends in Ephesus, in, in his book of to the Ephesians. In him, that is in Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed, he says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Did you get that? In other words, he says, you hear the gospel. What's the gospel? This man, Jesus, God in human flesh, died on a cross. And when we throw ourselves on him, so to speak, we come to him just as we are. We say, Lord, come into my life. The moment we do that, We receive the seal of God, the Holy Spirit, he says. So to receive the Spirit, we put our trust in Jesus. But there's something else, says the God says in his word. We must obey or follow God. Peter said these words when he was speaking to the Jewish leaders. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who what? to those who obey him or follow him. So there is the key to what it means to be a servant of God. What are servants of God? Let's put it all together. They are spirit-filled, meaning people who have the Holy Spirit comes into their life and they are obedient followers of Jesus Christ. That's what a servant of God means in the Bible. All right, now we can come back here. Now, what about the 144,000? Because it says 144,000 Israelite servants. Well, you need to come into the room at the end of the second session because I'm going to go through. Very quickly, you will see this business of the 144,000. Many people get scared because they say that's a very small number compared to how many in the world today, 7 billion. 
So you need to understand that. And I'll tell you what, there's mighty good news. So stay back behind at the end of our second session in the function room, and you will see in just a few minutes what that means. And it's a beautiful teaching of the Bible. It means something very important and something that gives hope to every one of us. All right. So we now understand Israelites are people who have accepted Jesus Christ who are, and, and, and servants means they are following Jesus. The Holy Spirit has taken control of their life. He is empowering their life. They are no longer what they once were. Now what about the seal of God now? Now we need to understand that bit. What's this stamp or seal of God? Is it some sort of a mark that God puts on people? Now remember, we're dealing with a symbolic book here. All right, let's come. Notice what it says. Do not harm the earth the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, in other words, you notice something interesting here. Notice what John is telling us. It's the servants of God that must have this. In other words, this is not the seal that we read about the Holy Spirit. Because it says these people who are the servants, who have the Spirit of God, who are Spirit-filled people, they must have this end-time seal. Don't harm the land and the sea, the earth and the sea and the trees, till we have sealed those people who are the servants of God. They need this. So you'll notice what's going on here. This is more than just the Holy Spirit. This is something that has to do with the end times because these people, filled by God, must receive this. Spirit-filled, obedient Christians, in other words, must have this seal, the Bible teaches us. All right, portrait number two now. That's the first portrait. John sees these people being sealed in their forehead. The final battle for global worship is found in Revelation 13 and 14, and we've been unfolding that. We noticed last night and last week, these two beasts with the dragon, they call for worship of the dragon. And in the first angel's message, God calls for worship of the creator God. Now, I want you to notice, John, as we saw last evening, you remember, almost the whole world is going to worship Satan. And you'll understand how that's going to happen during this program and next weekend. With people just going to bow down and say, Satan, we think you're the best thing on planet Earth. Is it going to No, much more subtle than that, as we're going to see from the Bible. But John sees almost the whole world is going to worship this being, but not everybody. Notice before we begin with God's message to call people back to worship him and not Satan. Notice he gives us a picture of people who are not going to worship him. John says, then I looked and I beheld, he says, a lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. Here are this group of people again, having his name and his father's name on written on their foreheads. In chapter 7, it was the seal of God. Now it has something to do with the name of God and the Lamb on their forehead. The Bible says very clearly here, when we go to look at what ancient seals are all about, we understand some things here. When you go to the Bible, you will discover that seals were outward signs or symbols or indicators of certain truths in the Bible. Here's one example. When you go to the book of Romans and Paul is talking about Abraham, notice what it says. He, Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal, it says, of the righteousness 
of the faith. What's he saying here? He's saying, listen, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, which was a seal that this man was righteous by his faith. When he came to God as he was, God accepted him and declared, Abraham is righteous in my sight. He's right before me. And the outward sign of that was something in the flesh he was told to do, circumcise yourself and your sons. That was something outward which symbolized a truth that he was right with God by his faith. So a seal is a sign of a truth, you see. This is the way the Bible is putting it. The seal is a sign of something. Now, what about God's end time seal? What is it a sign of? That's what we're going to look at now. So this seal represents something. Something outward represents some truth. In fact, a number of truths. Let's go to the Bible first of all and notice. First of all, God's end time seal that God's people must have is a sign of belonging and of commitment to the Lord. Notice the way John puts it here. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Why is this the case? Because it's saying God owns these people. They belong to him. They are committed to him. That's what it's telling us here. Now, what is God's name in the Bible? When you go to the scriptures, you discover very clearly what God calls his special name. God is speaking here uh, to Moses at the burning bush, the bush that wouldn't burn up but was burning. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. What is it? The Lord. God, L-O-R-D, capitals, this is the word in the Bible for Jehovah. That's God's sacred name. Jesus takes that name. That's why he says, I am the good shepherd. I, I am, that's word I am, is the word that we get Lord from, or Jehovah. It means the self-existent one, the one who never had a beginning, the one who never has an end. And Jesus himself took up that title. God's name is the Lord, Jehovah. And so it says, these people have his name on their forehead. That's his seal, meaning they belong to God. They are committed to him. Now we do this with cattle branding, don't we? You think about it. We brand cattle. It's a sign of belonging. This cow belongs to Farmer X or whatever it is. This is an outward sign that this cow belongs to this farmer. So this is this way we use it as well. Now, it's not only a sign of belonging and of our commitment to that God. It's a sign of a life that is cleansed by God in the Bible. Let's notice what it says. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. For they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed. Now, right here, you notice, if we're not looking at these things in symbolic form, we have some big problems, right, with this idea. He's talking about the 144,000 here. Notice, they're not defiled with women. Sorry, ladies, you cannot be among those people because they're all men. And sorry, any of you men who have had sex in marriage, you're not included because they're virgins, it says here. And they all follow a four-footed lamb around heaven. You see the picture? If we take it literally and don't look at the symbols, we run into all sorts of problems. 
Ladies, there's plenty of room for you as you're going to see if you stay back after the program. But you see what happens when we take it literally and don't let the Bible interpret itself. The lamb is not a four-footed lamb. So then we have to ask, what's it getting at here? So, but these people, the point is here, they are virgins. What does that mean? It means they're committed to God. Why are they committed? Because he has redeemed them or paid an enormous price. Now, when he says these are not defiled with women, he's actually referring to the fact that these people haven't been part of this thing, Babylon, the great prostitute and the mother of prostitutes, which you'll understand next weekend. We're going to look at this lady and what she's all about. But that's what John is saying. No, these people, they have left that stuff behind. They are faithful to their one lover, to Jesus Christ, who paid an enormous price for them and redeemed them. These are the ones, says John, who came out of the great tribulation and they washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the lamb. And he's talking about the same group here again. So you notice here, the idea of these people having a seal or God's name means this. They have been cleansed. Their life has been changed by the God who redeemed it. It's a sign of a life cleansed by God. Number three, it's a sign of creator worship in Revelation. Notice what John sees. He sees all these people, this 144,000 with God's name in their forehead. And notice what he hears next in the first angel's message. It says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of waters. These people are worshippers of the creator God and the seal of God with his name is a sign that that is, they believe that. They've accepted that. They believe that God is their creator and they worship him. They give him their allegiance. Lastly, it's a sign of obedience to the commandments of God. Notice what John saw. John says, as he comes to the end of the third angel's message, this is the one we're looking at about the mark of the beast. As he comes to the end, he says these words, here or this calls for the patience of the saints, God's friends. Here are those, he says, who what? Who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That seal that these people have, God's name in their forehead, is an outward sign that these people are faithful to God. They keep his commandments. They have faith in Jesus, and that's why they're obedient to Jesus. So what is this outward sign? What's this outward sign of being sealed by God? Something outward that says these things are true for these people. A sign that these people belong to God, committed to Jehovah God. What is this outward sign, this seal, that's a sign of a life that has been cleansed by the Lord, Jehovah himself? What is this sign, uh, uh, this seal, that's a sign of worship of God as the creator God? What is this outward sign of being sealed by God? A sign that we can see is what? The last one? A sign of obedience to the commandments of God. What is this outward indicator of this? My friends, it's the seventh day Sabbath. And now I want to show that to you because that's exactly what the Bible says as we go through Scripture. And now we'll be able to understand when we look at this, the other mark. Notice what it says. First of all, the seventh day Sabbath is actually called a sign of belonging and of commitment to Jehovah God. It says these words in the book of Ezekiel. 
We actually saw them last weekend. Hello, my Sabbaths. Who's speaking? Jehovah is speaking. Hello, my Sabbaths. And they will be a sign. That means a mark, an omen between me and you, says God, that you may know that I am the Lord, that's Jehovah, your God. Here it is, very clear here, the Sabbath is called a sign. It's also called in the Bible a sign of a life that is cleansed by the Lord Jehovah God. Notice what it says here. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths. What for? To be a sign, same word again, a mark between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord, there it is again, who sanctifies them. I'm the Lord who cleans up their life and changes them from the inside out. The Sabbath is called a sign, an outward sign that God does this in their life. Number three, it's called a sign of worshipping God as creator. Again, we go back this time to the book of Exodus. It, he says, the Sabbath, is a sign, and he uses the same word, a mark between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord, Jehovah, made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, the Bible says, God, he rested and was refreshed. Who is Israel, my friend? Today, Israel is Jew and non-Jew who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul makes that plain, as we saw previously. Finally, the Sabbath is called a sign of obedience or commitment to God and to his commandments. Notice we go back to the book of Ezekiel. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes or my commandments, keep my laws and do them. And then he signals out one in particular, hallow my Sabbaths and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Notice the context, a people who are faithful to God and keep his commandments because of their love for that God. So there we have it. You see, in the end of time, Who we worship, who we give our allegiance to, will be seen by how we worship. That's what the Bible is telling us. Who we worship is seen by how we worship. Do we worship the way God says, or do we do it our way, or the ways of men? Now, Jesus said it's important because we noticed this text last week, in vain. What a waste of time. Uselessly, blasphemously, that word vain means. They worship me. Why? Because teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, human ideas, for laying aside the commandment of God, he said, you hold the tradition of men. So he said, true worship is when we follow what God says regardless of what man says. Vain worship is where we follow the commandments of men or man's tradition and disobey the commandments of God. It's that plain, says Uh, Jesus in the book of Mark. So genuine worship is obedience to God's commandments. That's the mark. That's why Jesus said, keep my commandments and you'll stay in my love just as I keep my father's commandments and I abide in his love. All right. Well, when we see that, what the mark of God is, the outward sign of God's seal is the seventh day Sabbath we begin to understand why it's called that. Let me take you now to the Hittites. I want you to see something amazing that archaeologists have discovered in recent years. 
When you go to the Hittites, we learn something amazing. You see, the Bible was given while the Hittites were in, in, in great strength and power. And you will notice that the Bible is written to cultures, people in cultures of those days. And God uses some of these things to teach people some things. Notice what happens with the Hittites. We notice this great civilization of Hattusa there in Turkey. Now, archaeologists have noticed some interesting things about these Hittite peoples. They had what we call covenant treaties. In other words, if the Hittite king conquered another nation, he made a treaty with those people. He would put a vassal king on the throne, a puppet king, if you like, and uh, the king could rule that part of the now the Hittite empire so long as they, he agreed with the king in this treaty that they made or covenant. Now, what did they do with these treaties? Well, they made two copies of these treaties and they put them on clay tablets. One of those tablets of their covenant, it went in the palace of the king. And here's the king's palace at Atusa right here. The other copy went into the temple of the Hittites, the, the people of, who were conquered by the Hittites. So two copies of this covenant, one in the palace and one in the temple. Now, I would remind you that the Bible uses this sort of language for God's covenant. You will remember that God made a covenant called the Ten Commandments on two tablets. And those two tablets went into a very special place. They were put in the Ark or the box of the covenant. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant, because the covenant was inside, as we saw. And then that was put in the temple. Now, the temple of Israel was two things. It was the temple where God where they worshipped God and where they gave sacrifices, but it was also the living place or the house or the palace of God among Israel. That's how it's used in Scripture. One place, the temple, and the covenant went inside that temple. Now, what's more interesting is this. Now scholars know that the king's seal went in the center of that covenant treaty of the Hittites, right there in the middle. And now when scholars have looked at the Ten Commandments, God's covenant, hello, very something, something interesting place, takes place. The Sabbath is right at the center of God's Ten Commandments between the first half and the second half. This commandment is given. The same place, scholars notice, as the king's seal was put in the Hittite covenant treaties. And also they've noticed something else. The Hittite, the seal of the Hittite covenant has the king's name right there on that seal. Not only does it have his name, but it also has the title of that king. Now, when you look at God's covenant, it has the same things. It has God's name right there on the Sabbath seal, the, the seal, which is the, the outward uh, sign of God's seal, the Sabbath. He says, it's the Lord your God. It mentions it two or three times in this one commandment. And not only that, it tells us God's title. He is the creator of heaven and earth. And when some scholars have looked at this, they've said, hello, this is interesting, isn't it? Right the same as those ancient Hittite treaties and so on, we see the Sabbath featuring in exactly the same way in God's covenant that he has with his people. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth right there in God's great Sabbath commandment. The Sabbath, the outward sign of the seal of God uh, is this, the Sabbath. It's the outward sign of God's seal. So now we're able to understand 
If God's seal has something to do with time, namely a day, the seventh day, now we're able to understand something that's going to be in opposition, but something that will be similar that comes from called that is called the mark of the beast. We'll be able to understand it now. So let's go now to university history and to current events and seek to understand now, in light of God's seal, we can now begin to see some things about the beast's mark. Number one, the seal of God comes from God. Well, the mark of the beast comes from the beast. That's why it's called the mark of the beast of the beast. It's something that originates with the beast, just like God's sign originates with God. Notice what the Bible says about this in Revelation. John says, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark, notice very clearly, it's his mark. It comes from the beast, meaning, as we saw last evening, it's something that comes from the medieval church of Rome. That's where it originates from because it's from the beast. It's his mark. So it must be something that comes from the dark age medieval church. Number two, the seal of God is a sign of worship of God in the Bible. So the mark of the beast must be something to do with worship. In fact, it's a sign of the worship of the beast, his mark. Notice what John says. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark, you can see here very clearly the idea of the beast mark is linked to the worship or the allegiance to that beast. The seal of God reveals obedience to God. We've seen that. Now, the mark of the beast reveals disobedience to God, the opposite. Notice the way John says it as we come to the end of that third angel. There is no rest day or night for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Because of this, the saints, God's people, must endure. And what do they do? They keep God's commandments. Whereas the people who take the beast, he's saying, they don't keep God's commandments. God's people do. The devil's people, those with his mark, that comes from the beast that's that's came to power through the dragon we saw last night. These people are not doing that. All right, the last one. The seal of God is linked to rest in the Bible. We've seen that. Linked to the seventh day. Keep the Sabbath. Holy, God says. So the beast mark is also linked to rest. But this mark does not give rest. Notice what John says as he mentions this in Revelation chapter 13. John says, there is no rest day or night for anyone who receives this mark of his name. Notice the interesting contra, interesting rest is mentioned here, but really that's the absence of rest. People may think, but it doesn't provide rest at all. So what is the beast mark that actually comes from the church of Rome? What is it that is a sign of worship or allegiance to the beast? What is it, this mark, that is an indicator of the fact that these people are disobedient to God's commandments? And finally, that is an indicator that it is linked or connected to rest. What is the beast mark? It's very plain when we put all of that together now in the light of the seal of God, in contrast to the beast mark, it's very plain now what the beast mark is and even the church tells us. Notice what the church tells us. They tell us very clearly that the beast mark is the Sunday worship. Let me put it up for you right here. Here we go to one of the statements from the church's paper, the 
Catholic records. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible. And this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Now, this is a statement from the church itself. In other words, Sunday is their mark of authority. It comes from us. It's not found in the Bible. In fact, that's exactly what we saw. Now, notice this statement, an abridgment of the Christian doctrine, one of the church's uh, books. It says these words here. Question and answer form. Have you any other way of proving that the church has power or authority to institute festivals of or precept? Answer given here is this one. Had she not had such power or authority, she could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day. And notice what the church says. A change for which there is no what? No scriptural authority. And we saw that. Even the cardinal mentioned that we saw last week. The cardinal said, this is not in the Bible. This is the church's a right to do this, they believe. Now, St. Catherine's Sentinel here, a paper that the church puts out, is fascinating. Now, notice this is not coming from me. This is coming from the church here. This, But it's an amazing statement that the church makes. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most evolutionary change that the church ever could, ever did, happened in the first century. Now, it didn't happen in the first century. It happened in the second and the third. We know that from history, but the church says, no, no, we changed it in the first century. Now, the holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Now, as I said, that's not coming from me. That's the church is saying, if we're going to be consistent and we're going to follow the Bible, then that's the sort of thing we should do, according to the Church of Rome. Quite an amazing statement and an amazing admission there from the church. All right. Well, we can clearly see what is the beast mark. The outward sign is the keeping of Sunday in the end of time. Now, what about this business of 666? How do we understand this thing? What is this all about? Well, let's notice what John says here in the Revelation again. John says, as we go back to Revelation chapter 13, verse 18, Here is wisdom. Let him or her who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. All right. Now, I want you to notice that 666 is not the mark of the beast. They're different things. Let's read it here in John's Revelation. And that no one could buy or sell except those who have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Notice we're dealing with different things here. Many people get these things confused. The mark is clearly the outward sign is the keeping of Sunday. Now, what about the number? All right. Now, in the Bible, man's number is six. What day was man created on? It was on the sixth day of creation. Remember that? We went and noticed that last weekend. Man's created on day six. Now, when we see this, we notice that God's number, however, is seven. 
in Scripture. That's why in Revelation, we have seven churches. We have seven seals. We have seven trumpets. We have seven plagues. We have the seventh day. God's number of completeness is the number of seven. So six, six, six is man fixed on himself. He will not move on and rest in God. He will stay with himself. And that's a dangerous thing when any of us see ourselves or our everything centers in human beings. 666, man-centered religion. That's what John is telling us here. This is man-centered religion. In fact, you will recall last weekend when we studied that little horn, the Antichrist. What did John say about this power? Notice what he said. And there in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. This is man-centered religion. Paul, in his discussion of Antichrist, he said it's the man of lawlessness. That's what he called it, man-centered religion. And that's what John is telling us here, sadly. 666 is telling us this is man-centered religion, human-centered, sadly, where man is fixed on himself and will not go on to rest in God and his power as he should. But however, there's something else which people have brought up, and it's quite valid too. The ancient Babylonians and the Jewish people who gave us, the Jews who gave us the scriptures, they had a practice that is known as gematria. What is gematria? Gematria is where number values are given for words. We have that in Latin, for example. Latin has numerical values to many of its letters. Now, notice what the Bible says if we go back, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then John adds these words, which we must do. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate. That's why many scholars see this is the idea for gematria coming up here. Calculate the number of the beast. It is the number of a man. His number is six Six, six. Now, let me tell you this afternoon, you could do this for a lot of different things and you could end up with Webster being 666. And you might even end up with Bob being 666. You know, you can do that sort of thing. But it is interesting that when we do apply this to the medieval church, one of the titles, it certainly fits. But I want to come back to something in a moment. Now, the church says we are a visible society and it must have a visible head. And one of the titles that the bishops of Rome have taken for centuries, you can see this very clearly documented, is the term vicarius fidei, which means the vicar of the son of God, dei meaning God. Now, people have looked at this in Latin and said, well, when you look at this, look what it adds up to. Notice what they've said. Vicarious, V is five, I is one, C is 100, A has no value, and so on. That comes to 112. The word phili comes to 53. The word dei comes to 501. When you put them all together, you get 666. Now, please, (laughs) this is just one of seven indicators. The more important ones are the ones we looked at last night, but at least this certainly does work. A title which has been taken by leaders down through the centuries, and it certainly adds up. And we must do that because John says, calculate the number of his name. But there's seven identifying characteristics, very clearly that we saw more importantly last night. All right, how will the mark of the beast be enforced? That's the question now. How is this going to happen? Well, John tells us, he says these words, he, the land beast, he causes the all, both small and great, 
rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. In other words, it is going to be that second beast, that one we saw last night, the one coming from the land, Protestant America that is no longer protesting, that has turned away from the teachings of the Bible. This great nation is going to help the world move back to Rome. And we saw last evening that is happening today in a big way. Now, let me just say before we go on, no one yet has the mark of the beast, as we've just read that text. Please don't go from this place saying that Webster said that every Sunday keeper's got the mark of the beast. I did not say that. <laughs> All right. John did not say that. It says he says this will happen when those things happen. We have not yet come to this time when people are forced by death or they cannot buy or sell unless they have this mark. We've not yet come there. No question the mark of the beast, the outward sign is the Sunday keeping, but nobody yet has it because we haven't come to the, this time in the scriptures yet. So we are not there yet. We are moving there as you're going to see in a moment, but we are not there. There are many faithful people who love God who keep Sunday today because they do not know any difference. They love God with all their heart, and many of those people are in the Church of Rome. I've met them. Some of them have been my friends. God has his people scattered everywhere, and many people do not understand these things that you're understanding here. And at times of ignorance, God winks at. So nobody yet has the mark of the beast. But a time is coming when this is going to be the great issue. Who you worship will be decided by how you and I worship. Will we worship God and keep his Sabbath, or will we follow the mark that comes from the beast? All right, let's move on now. So where are we today in all of this? Are we moving in this direction? Are things happening? Let me share with you what is happening today. First of all, let's see what the Church of Rome is saying today about Sunday. A lot of agitation has been taking place in the, during the pontificates of the last three bishops of Rome. Notice, for example, Pope John Paul II wrote a tremendous the long letter, 41 pages, Dies Domini, the Lord's Day, meaning Sunday, back in 1998. A lot of things to say. In fact, it caught the attention of people here in Australia big time, let me tell you. But notice what the Pope said at this time about Sunday. He was really pushing. Pope Leo Thirteenth spoke of Sunday rest as a worker's right, which the state must guarantee, said Pope John Paul. Therefore, also, in the particular circumstances, he said, of our own time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Interesting statement from the Bishop of Rome back in the time of or John Paul II. Notice I said Australians really, this was came to our attention in the Australian. The papal bid to resurrect the Sabbath, meaning Sunday. This was one of the things that we were, this, because of this letter that came out. It was big news back then. Pope Benedict back in 2009, the previous pontiff. Notice what he said. Pope Benedict on Sunday called on Catholics to keep the Sabbath meaning Sunday. The Pope said, Western societies had transformed Sundays into days where leisure activities had eclipsed the traditional Christian meaning of the day to devote time to God. Give the soul its Sunday, he said. Give Sunday its soul. This gentleman, this bishop, he was certainly trying to make help his flock 
come far back, far more back to the keeping of Sunday. And what about the current pontiff, uh, Pope Francis, loved by many people around the world? What does he have to say about this? He's certainly saying some interesting things today as well. Pope Francis lamented on Saturday, he was talking, uh, the abandoning of the traditionally Christian practice of not working on Sundays, saying, he said, saying it has negative impact on families and friendships. This is interesting. He's saying, hey, we need to come back to Sunday for families and friendships. While he said poor people need jobs to have dignity, he indicated that opening stores and other businesses on Sundays as a way to create jobs wasn't beneficial for society. Francis said the priority should not be economic but human and that the stress should be on families and friendships, not commercial relationships. Maybe, he said, it's time to ask ourselves if working on Sundays is true freedom, the Pope said. Interesting. The Bible said Sunday is a working day. Six days you shall labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. I like the idea of family and friends, but when it goes against the word of God, there's a problem here. When it disagrees with the commandments of God. What about Protestants in the United States of America? Have they been sort of agitating this way? Well, it's interesting to look at some of the things that have been happening. Let me just share with you a couple of them. At times when there was a crisis in the economy. Back in the 70s, an interesting statement was made by the editor of one of the Protestants' leading journals, Christianity Today. It's read by many Protestants around the world, let alone North America. This is Harold Linzel, editor of Christianity Today. Notice what he said back in this time, just to show you that some people think this way. Just as John said, people would think this way. All businesses, he said, including gasoline stations and restaurants, should close every Sunday by force of legislative fear, by the command of the government, in other words, through, he said, the duly elected officials of the people. Then a few years later, back in the 1988 presidential campaign, when oftentimes uh, those who are wanting to be the president of the United States try to appeal to those people who are religious, the religious right more, Pat Robinson was a presidential candidate, and he had a book called The New World Order. I want you to notice what he wrote in this book. It's very interesting. The next obligation that a citizen of God's world order owes is to himself. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he said, meaning Sunday. For Robinson, that's what he's talking about. That's the Sabbath for him. This is a command for the personal benefit of each citizen. Higher civilizations rise, he said, when people can rest and draw inspiration from God. Laws in America, and he's referring to what's happened in America, laws in America that mandated a, mandated a day of rest. You see, back in uh, a few years ago now, most states of the United States of America had Sunday laws where you had to do certain things and not do certain things, I should say, on Sunday, but they've been repealed a lot in more recent times, and he's, he's bemoaning that fact. This guy, he says, in America, that mandated a day of rest, Sunday laws have been nullified. Why? As a violation of the separation of church and state. So this man is saying, listen, we should bring those laws back again that mandated Sunday being a sacred day in our nation. Now, he's only one of many people who want to think that way. We have not got to the full thing, of course, not yet. But let me tell you, in some countries, there have been Sunday laws imposed by Christians. I was living in Fiji at the time of a military coup. 
and uh, imposed on the nation, whether you were a Hindu or a Christian, you had to shut your shop on Sunday. These things have happened in different parts of the world. John is indicating as we come to the end of time, people will not be able to buy or sell unless they receive that mark, a sign of allegiance to the beast rather than to God. Now, the seventh day Sabbath and this issue of the seal of God and the mark of the beast, my friends, is an indicator, as we saw last night, that we are moving toward the day when Jesus will come. We are not the full extent there, but we are seeing these two powers have risen and they're now starting to draw together, as we saw last night, and they're People are thinking in these directions very clearly. The Seventh-day Sabbath has been trodden down by, sadly, the Christian church for many years now. And God is seeking to call men and women back to his Seventh-day Sabbath. In the end of time, who will we worship will be defined by how we worship. Will we keep God's Sabbath in obedience and love to God, or will we choose the beast mark so that we can survive, so that we can buy or sell? To take one mark will be allegiance to that power. To take the other will be allegiance to that power or worship to those powers. The question today is this. Who will you and I worship? Will we worship Christ by keeping his Sabbath? Or will we take the beast mark that comes originally from Satan himself in opposition to Christ himself? Who will we worship will be decided for you and I how we will worship. And that day... We are moving towards no question. I remember hearing the story, a fascinating story of what took place back in northern Europe during the time of the Romans. The Romans were camped, a group of Romans were camped by a frozen lake there in northern Europe. And the commander received word from the emperor that only those who worshipped the emperor could stay in the army. So the commanding officer of this outfit camped by this lake up there, a frozen lake in Europe, he called his men together and said, listen, this command has come from the emperor and only those who worship the emperor can stay in this outfit. He knew there were 40 men who were Christians and he knew these 40 men would not follow this command. But he had to follow what the emperor had said and so he said, now listen, if you're going to uh, just worship the emperor, take three paces forward and everybody took three paces forward except these 40 men. And then the commanding officer there, he called those men forward and he said, now strip everything off, take it right off, right down to your skin. And these men were then marched naked right out of the center of that great lake there and left there by the soldiers. And the commanding officer sat around his fire there. And as he sat around the fire, he heard the words of the song coming from these 40 men. And it went something like this, 40 brave soldiers standing firm for you, O Christ. And that song kept on being repeated through the night hours, getting weaker and weaker as the night wore on. And finally, as the commanding officer was sitting there around his fire there, in the shadows that were around, he noticed a form of a man crawling into the fire, toward the fire. One of the men had given up. He had decided to yield. And uh, now the song came across the air, 39 brave soldiers standing firm for you, O Christ. And the commander looked at that man on the ground, collapsed in front of the fire, heard that song, and his mind began to race, began to think. And slowly, very slowly, he began to unbutton his tunic. He began to take off his equipment. 
and he stripped completely naked and then he ran out onto the into that middle of that lake and joined those men and now the song came a little louder now 40 brave soldiers standing firm for you O Christ my friend this afternoon there comes a time to each one of us when we must make a stand for Christ when we must say this matters it matters to God and God wants us to take a stand You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.